0: Hello, and welcome to Not For Girls, a podcast by two women fighting gender stereotypes, talking about life, sex education, and everything in between. Hello, I'm Leah. And this week, we don't have Nikki, sadly. We are instead joined by the wonderful Emma from the Real Life Ghost Stories podcast. Hi, Emma. Hello. How are you doing? Very, very well. So happy to have you here. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm so
1: excited to be here. I've been digging your episodes. They are my go-to when I go for a long walk and I am feeling it. Love hearing strong women talking about life stuff. It makes me happy.
0: Ah, oh, it makes us happy too. We're so so glad to have you on board. Just to say, this week it's because Nikki is moving house. Um, but Emma, you actually have a lot of credentials on the topic of sex education, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Yeah, this is sort of weird because I've never really spoken about what I do in my real life, um, and there's re- the reasons for that would become clear. But I, so I've I've been a secondary school teacher for nearly ten years. I trained in Ireland um, and I, I'm trained to teach uh, religious education and English literature. That's what my degree was in. And then I moved here back in 2012, maybe, just when I finished my master's degree. I very pretentiously did a master's degree in poetry studies, which I can tell you has not stood to me. It has not <laughs> changed my career path. <laughs> um <laughs> So I've been teaching here for yeah, nearly 10 years and I've taught sex education for a really long time. Um, but contrary to what happens normally, I actually trained to teach sex education with the NHS at one point. And it, it was one of my favourite things to teach. So I wrote a lot of curriculum for sex education and um for, S, uh, for PSHE, which is personal, social and health education. Wow. And I... Also then in the last maybe three years became a DSL, which is a designated safeguarding lead. So I moved away from teaching education and I essentially worked on the front line. So if a family or a child was in crisis, whether it was abuse or trauma or drugs or alcohol or debt or whatever it was, um, I was the first port of call and I would work with the police social services and mm. the mental health team in order to support the family in crisis and then oh honestly this is wild and then <laughs> I um, have just finished a doctorate in education and I specialize in educational policy and how educational policy is implemented by teachers so that's so
0: yeah that's that's me that's what I do <laughs> That's amazing. So you're you're pretty much like a subject matter expert on this, which is awesome for us because for me and Nikki, we kind of throw together some research and then we're like, yeah, we we know enough. <laughs> well,
1: it's it's interesting, right? Because you know, when I was when I was researching for this episode, I was like, I kept having to, even though policy, educational policy is like my forte, it's it's my specialism. Mm-hmm. I was like. I don't know if policy exists on this. And I was like researching and Googling because even though you think you're an expert, I'm kind of like a colloquial expert, you know, because I've, I've done it on the ground and my, my knowledge of policy is sometimes a bit ropey, but we'll do our best.
0: Yeah, I think we'll be absolutely fine. Um And yeah, we're so happy to have you. So thanks ever so much for doing this. Um, Real quick warning before we start is that there may be topics about consent or about abuse. So just want to put that straight up here at the beginning in case people decide that maybe this particular episode isn't for them. That's absolutely fine. Feel free to come back for the next one. But just want to have a little disclaimer up front because I really wouldn't want to upset anybody, uh, depending on how this conversation goes, if it goes into those territories. People need to know beforehand. Cool. Alrighty. So um, we're going to dive straight into this one. So uh, I thought we could kick things off by talking a little bit about our personal experience of of sex education growing up. Um, Happy to go first, unless you'd like to take the floor, Emma? No, go for it. I'm excited
1: to hear about your your sex education growing up.
0: Okay. (laughs) All right. Um, So as far as I remember, and I've literally scoured my brain, I had two different classes. Uh, for sex education. I had one in year five, which is when you're around age 10. And then another one in year 11, at the end of secondary school, when you're about age 15 or 16. And the first one, when I was about 10 years old, was basically to warn everyone about how their bodies would change over the next few years of puberty. And the way we learned this information was through, you know, the cornerstone of the comprehensive school curriculum, watching a video. Ah, that's (laughs) the dream yeah all the best lessons you know they wheel in the video or the overhead projector and you just get to sit back and watch stuff only this time we were sitting back and watching what was basically a naked couple a man and a woman walk around their house and the video like pointed out their bits Stop. explaining that soon we'd all grow those same bits Um and it was the first time I ever saw a penis was th- thankfully it was flaccid it was off duty it wasn't jumping out at me from the screen but also the, uh, the the clearest memory that I have of this video was that the woman in it had the biggest bush I've ever seen to this day I still haven't seen a bigger one and that was the first one I ever saw
1: So, I mean that's I just, impressive I'm digging that kind of 80s style throwback, loving it it must have been a pretty old video like <laughs>
0: very 80s um but but yeah that's my that's my clearest memory of it and I just remember feeling pretty scared that that was what I, my body was gonna become <laughs> that's um, really
1: that's really interesting I mean like I just find it so bizarre that the best way I mean that's and it's not that long ago really the best no, way. This,
0: this was early 90s, maybe? No, mid 90s, something like that.
1: Yeah, and imagine the best way they thought, right, we're, we're not going to talk to children about their bodies. We're not going to talk <laughs> to them about sex. We're going to show them just two naked people and say, this is a penis and this is a vagina. And yes. You're going <laughs> to. At exactly some point, you're going to look exactly like this in this video.
0: <laughs> Any <laughs> yep.
1: alteration from that should cause you alarm.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. That was exactly how it went. Um, you know, it was, they, they did the whole thing in the video where they show you like the cross section of both, you know, men's bits and women's bits, and you learn about how pregnancy happens and the fallopian tubes and all that stuff. Um, but they also did the thing where we had to go into separate rooms with the girls and one room and the boys in another room um and i, I to this day i don't know what the boys saw boys Yeah, don't know what they did or what happened but we were all shown sanitary towels and tampons and all the things that you could use for having your period and that was when my, my mood changed from being like slightly grossed out to just being like absolutely terrified like all I can remember thinking was I I don't want this to happen I don't want to bleed for a whole week every single month for near enough the rest of my life like at least that's how long it felt like it would happen for back then Um, and everyone like tries to reassure you that it's not really that bad and it's only an egg cups worth of blood that you lose every month but I remember just feeling really mad finding out this would happen and there was just nothing I could do to stop it I just was really resistant to it. Yeah, I mean, it's that it blows
1: my mind because I've been thinking about this all week as well. And I got no sex education for the entirety of my school career. So wow. I went to an all girls Catholic primary school because I'm I'm Irish and I'm from Catholic Ireland. Mm-hmm. And I went to an all girls uh, convent secondary school. And I vaguely remember being like brought into maybe like the assembly hall when I was in first or second year, which is about like 12 or 13 and told the same thing. Periods are going to happen. Suck it Mm. up and get on with it. Uh, I mean, the, the education about like, that periods can be different for for some people and for some people they'd be heavier and for some people they'd be more painful and what's normal and what isn't normal that didn't happen it was <laughs> it was just these are sanitary towels these are tampons probably don't use tampons because somehow they're they're seen as sexualized items and linked vaguely to your virginity so don't do that um wow. But I, I just don't remember any other sex education other than that. We did, like I did biology and we got the kind of the factual rundown, this is a penis, this is a vagina, these are ovaries, this is what happens. But for, in terms of like robust sexual and relationship education, we just didn't get any. And it might be, you know, it's a possibility that I missed it, you know, that I that I was absent that day that they happened to do it. But I have absolutely no recollection of getting any sex ed. So I know, which is which it seems wild today in our modern world, especially with policy on sex education changing. And we'll talk about that in a bit. But I just had there were no adults in my educational life that freely and openly talked about sex. Even when we had the period conversation, it Mm -hmm. was an outside like agency that came in to talk to us about periods.
0: Right wow we had that too but not until later in secondary school but um but yeah i mean i suppose that would somewhat make sense in terms of you know it being a, a catholic convent school um but what, but what about your family like you know mother or sisters or female relatives like you know was there knowledge sharing or education in that more like familial capacity at all or
1: i mean i've got i've got a really big family And I've lots of very strong women in my family, as you could probably imagine from listening to me. So I easily, (laughs) easily could talk to my mom and I've got an older sister as well about periods if I had felt the need to. But I was also riddled with embarrassment about it. I was so Mm -hmm. embarrassed about periods or period conversations or just periods in general. I thought, like you, I thought, Fuck me this is the rest of my life like i yeah. have got to bleed for a week for the rest of my life and there's there's nothing i can do about it you know yeah. because i never learned about things like the pill or like the implant that blew my mind when i discovered that was a thing yeah. so it it seemed like some sort of weird monthly death sentence that this was going to happen to us. And I was really lucky that, you know, I do have a very open family. If if I rang my mum now and had a mm. conversation about my periods, there would be no shame or embarrassment or coyness about it. But when I was a teenager, I was just too embarrassed to talk to anybody about it. Mm. And I know that if I'd said to my mum, hey, I don't understand this or what does this mean? She would have been perfectly open and willing to have a conversation about it. But mm. because I had no experience of having open conversations with adults outside of my family, the last thing I wanted was to talk to my family about embarrassing reproductive things.
0: Right, of course, and like especially at that age when, you know, you're pretty much just waiting for that doomsday you know, thing to to like drop. Because uh, like I, I remember since between having the lessons when I was about ten and actually starting my period a few years later, like I just remember feeling that fear of like it's gonna happen, but when is it gonna happen? And I would always like check to make sure. And I remember one time I found like a tiny speck of blood on my pants. It must have been from like a random injury or whatever in hindsight. But I remember thinking oh, this really isn't that bad. And I I went to my mum to explain, like, I think I've just started my period. And she took one look and was just like, no, that's not it. When you
1: get it, you'll know. I like to imagine that you were like, I think I've just started my period and I don't know what you've
0: all been complaining about because this is fine. <laughs> like I'm the toughest, baddest bitch, age 12, like strutting through the neighborhood. Like, yeah, I'm what?
1: <laughs> I remember my aunt um, telling me, like when she started her period, when she was whatever age she was, 11 or 12, mm. her mom just literally couldn't talk to her about it. So she went to her mom. She literally thought she was dying. Nobody had ever told mm. her about periods. She was in a house full of boys. She had no idea what was happening to her. Thought, this is it. I'm on the way out. This is how I die. Went oh to her mum and said, I'm dying. Oh God, <laughs> and her mum And her mum just went, You need to go speak to your cousin. Cause her mum just couldn't have the conversation with her. Just no. was too embarrassed. And obviously it's a different generation. And I do, I do understand that there's generational shame linked mm. to periods. But she Yeah, off she went to her cousin down the road sobbing because she thought she had some sort of horrific terminal illness and her cousin was like, oh, no, you've just got your period. (laughs) What's a period? Nobody's ever told me that before. (laughs) Wow,
0: that's crazy. (laughs) Yeah, I remember um, the, the second lesson that I had on sex education. It was a weird one. Because um, it was in secondary school and this was where we had like a local youth education group um, come from like a, a local college or whatever to do sex education lessons. But this time, because everyone was 16, it was more about contraception and safe sex. So we did get a little bit of that at school, but it was still because it was a Church of England school. Um, so they uh, sort of initially was just like, uh, everybody shouldn't do it. But then because like everybody's a bunch of horny teenagers in a mixed comprehensive school they were like "Ah, fine because some of you are obviously (laughs) gonna do it (laughs) we'll give you the contraception talk and um and yeah it was uh well most of my friends were already on the pill and everyone thought that was so cool and mature (laughs) and I I remember in one part of the lesson we had to do like a, a quiz on sex education for everything we'd be learning and i got put in a group with this kid who was a total square normally like aced quizzes in class and she was really confident but i knew she was getting all these answers wrong because it's like me and my friends were the rebellious kids and we always got in trouble and hung out with older kids outside of school and then i had to read out her wrong answers in front of the whole class and everybody's like oh
1: leah knows nothing about sex she's such a nerd
0: (laughs) i know my my street cred it never recovered after that (laughs) but they did do a a lesson on consent and i'm quite excited to talk about this because i think i I think we'll both have some opinions straight away so for teaching us about consent there's these youth volunteers from this local college uh and they they came in to do all these lessons and for the exercise on consent there's this 18 year old boy with like boy band hair like all disheveled and you know (laughs) (laughs) all like attractive and he's 18 we're 16 so straight away all the girls in the class are like he's fit (laughs) but the way they taught us the importance of consent was for all the girls in the class one at a time to sit in a chair Uh, with him in another chair in front of the whole class, well, he repeatedly asked to have sex with us and we had to repeatedly practice saying no and then had to practice changing the subject by saying, no, I'm just going to go make tea, actually.
1: (laughs) Well, let me tell you. If only this youth group could teach everybody that that's how easy consent is. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I know. <laughs>
1: like, if oh you my... say no, you just need to say it louder and louder and then change the subject.
0: And then make tea. <laughs> Which also is the most British excuse to not have sex that I've ever heard in my life. Like, what? Sex? Now? No, darling, it's tea time. <laughs> like, I do, but that... there's there's something so
1: wrong about and i and i appreciate that the sentiment behind it but there's something so wrong about 16 year olds learning their sex education from youth volunteers from a local college like it, mm-hmm. it that is that's just fundamentally not okay. And I get it because a part of that is about we want to appear like we're young and hip and down with the kids. Yes. And these kids will relate to somebody that's only a couple of years older than them. Mm. But there's <laughs> glaring errors there about, you know, experience and comfort and research
0: yes. that really
1: should be taken into consideration when you talk about sex education. And interestingly, like the approach to sex education hasn't really changed so generally sex education in schools is taught it, it's seen as like the, the you know the, the whoever gets the shortest straw has to teach sex education it's like oh for fuck's sake because nobody ever wants to do it and it's often taught by people who a aren't trained to do it and b aren't even comfortable having those conversations mm. so really sex education should be taught by people who are trained and interested in talking to young people about sex.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And like the way that that lesson happened as well was so problematic because we were essentially being shown through this exercise that pressuring someone to have sex is the normal thing um but women are you know it's their responsibility (laughs) when someone has sex with us so like the onus should have been put on the boys in their version of the exercise to be like you ask her she says no and you then communicate with your partner you make sure they're okay you check in you have an open honest conversation and talk about you know, when you're ready to take that step or whatever, but none of that happened. It was just go make tea. And like, you know, even that reinforces (laughs) other gender norms (laughs) that I'm still not happy with. So it was just the whole thing. I'm like, yeah, I mean, we got sex education, but I mean, I'm not entirely sure how effective that was, (laughs) I guess.
1: I mean, at least you got something.
0: Right. Yeah. Effective.
1: Effective. Maybe it wasn't. But yes, the, no. their, their heart was in the right place. And I knew, I knew nothing about, like I remember being maybe 11 or 12 and some girls that I knew were talking about condoms didn't, I had no idea what a condom was, literally. Yeah. And it was one of those conversations where, where I was going, oh yeah, 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 condoms. And in my head I was like, what the fuck is a condom? And I couldn't, <laughs> I didn't even have the contextual knowledge to try and understand or try and put some sort of meaning onto it. I just had mm. no idea absolutely no idea and I remember like later on people talking about um oral sex and I had absolutely no idea what what that meant I was I'm like not, talking yeah, to same.
0: people like what, what, what it took me ages to learn exactly what that was and then when I did learn I was like why would you do that
1: <laughs> <laughs> but yeah I was very I was very naive I probably could have done with Anybody coming in and talking about sex education and Mm. even like, and and consent is obviously, it's such a massive talking point at the moment. And as it should be, it should be a permanent talking point in sex education. Mm. And I remember I was, I've been thinking about all different like experiences that I've had in terms of sex education. And I can remember being maybe 13 or 14 and there was a girl in my, uh, there was a girl in my year and she well she had a boyfriend who was considerably older and obviously all of us thought that was so cool because that is mm. that was the coolest thing you could do as a teenager was of have course. an older boyfriend yes and she <laughs> uh, and this is this is quite triggering it i'm not going to go into great detail but i remember having a conversation with her about um how he would pay her for sex so he would give her like a weekly allowance for sex and she yeah. was like isn't that so cool like i get money for having sex. Now, I am not remotely opposed to sex work in any way, shape or form, as long as it's consensual and as long as everybody's of age. And at the time, I remember feeling really uncomfortable what she said, but I had no understanding as to why I felt uncomfortable. So Mm. that has stuck with me for all those years since. And if we had been better educated or if we had learned about consent or even power dynamics in relationship or grooming or anything like that maybe I would have been able to say or one of her friends would have been able to say hey you know it's not actually okay that he he does that like that seems really wrong Mm -hmm. and it might have might have changed her perspective on it from being oh I have this older boyfriend that gives me money and that's so cool to hang on I'm actually being groomed and abused here and that's not a good thing Right. But it's, you know, and, and that lack of understanding and lack of any sort of knowledge meant that in, in you know, my school setting, these conversations were rife. Mm. But nobody really had the language to be able to articulate why they felt uncomfortable with things. Because if you don't know a wide scope of sex education, where do you pinpoint that language to say, hey, this is my boundary and I'm not okay with that, which is obviously really important.
0: Right, of course. If you can't define a problem, yeah, you don't, you don't know it's there.
1: Yeah, how yeah, do you how course. do you learn how to talk about it? And interestingly, like there's lots of new policy in education about and in sex education. So I think in the September coming, September twenty twenty, there. There's a new mandatory sex and relationship education policy um, that's been implemented across schools in England, which Mm. is important and very necessary. And the language within those policies is generally very inclusive, very up to date. So they include language in the policy about upskirting, for example. Mm. If you don't know what that is, as a listener, it's like taking pictures up a girl's skirt without her consent, essentially, and it's vaguest, loosest term. They have uh, language about peer-on-peer abuse and how prevalent peer-on-peer abuse is, which is often missed because we're so intent on looking out for teenagers being groomed by older people. We forget Mm. that actually they are at risk from their peers too. And all those things are really important. And consent is a massive part of sex and relationships education and understanding consent. However, how that is then translated into a classroom can often be incredibly different so like your story those young people absolutely were doing the right thing by teaching young people about consent but when Mm -hmm. you're teaching consent that perpetuates the narrative that women have to repeatedly say no in order for you know consent not to be given then that's incredibly problematic in itself and it's the same in a school setting if you've got people teaching sex ed who like I said see it as the short straw don't Mm want to teach it aren't really arsed and don't do the research yes you're ticking a box by saying we did a lesson on consent but what did that lesson actually entail and what did those kids take away from it
0: yeah, that's that's the real that's the real point about this, isn't it? And, um, you know, it's it, it goes back to exactly what you were saying about, you know, arming yourself with the information to define what's happening and just just have information at your fingertips so that, you know, this is wrong or this is right. And there's no gray areas. Um, but I think, you know, as much as I kind of yeah got a little bit of sex education in school, um, my upbringing, although it was Church of England, it was still you know full of these these religious messages as well so i ended up with a lot of gray areas nonetheless like i was still very confused about exactly what having sex would mean um or and and kind of everything else that went with it as well i mean and and throughout my 20s i've been finding out about different kinds of contraception that i can try and obviously part of that is that new stuff keeps coming out but like uh it's it's just not having this information at the time when your periods start or at the time when you become sexually active. Uh, and I think it just, for so many people, it feels as though it's this almost trial and error way of education, which with something like sex, I think is probably a bit too important to teach through trial and error. I think we need the information up front and then hopefully avoid people making errors that could really harm them or someone else. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm all for sex education reform. If that's coming in September, then I'm here for it.
1: <laughs> and it, yeah, the thing with sex education reform is, you know, like I said, it's all well and good writing in a policy that you need to teach kids about consent. But how that translates is often very different. And our sex education fundamentally tends to be reactive. And that's mm. not useful. It's not useful If you find out that loads of kids in your class have been sending nude pictures and you then have an assembly about how if you send nude pictures, you're going to go to jail. Like that's Mm. not that's not useful. And you need to equip children with the tools to make strong decisions. And actually, that starts from primary school because Mm. not necessarily you're not going to be teaching primary school kids about. You know, not sending nude pictures. However, Mm. what you can do is instill in primary school children the resilience and the strength in their own convictions to be able to make their own decisions, understand their own boundaries, and respect their own boundaries.
0: Mm. And that's absolutely,
1: that's kind of living in like a fantasy world, thinking that that's a simple answer to you know, a huge problem, but it is, it it does have to start from very young. And like I said, it doesn't mean you have to be having explicit conversations about, you know, the implications of sex with young children, but actually giving them self-confidence, self-belief and resilience paves the way for stronger decision-making later and actually less risk-taking behaviour, but we'll talk about that in a little bit.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. But but you're totally right. And the same goes for the kind of bodily autonomy. Like even in small ways, you know, I, this must must happen to so many people. But where you get told as a kid, like, you know, oh, go on, go give uncle, what's his face, um, a kiss. And you're like, I don't want to. He's old and weird. And I don't want to <laughs> do that. But you get made to. And it's, it's even that of kind of just giving children the, the respect and, and space to say, no, I'd rather not. And then respecting that and teaching them through. Through our actions that like no does mean no and that's fine and you can say no and you're not going to you're not going to be made to do otherwise.
1: Yeah and those and those kind of familial interactions are the stepping stones for being really fort- forthright about your own ideas of consent later. Mm-hmm. So of being you know able to stand behind no means no for you and um, and being able to be to be confident in that because actually unfortunately a lot of young girls and um teenage boys as well they enter into sexual scenarios that they didn't necessarily want to be in purely because they aren't they don't have the bravery to say no and they feel like oh shit everybody else is having sex and this is the kind of the cool thing to do. So I should be doing it too, even though in their heart, that's not where they want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, there's there's some science behind that, which we'll look at later. But it is it is unfortunately something that starts very young and we need to be instilling those boundaries in kids from a really young age and the mm-hmm. confidence to respect both their decision making, their own decision making and other people's.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, having had obviously a religious upbringing, which we both did, obviously for yourself, Catholic, for myself, Church of England, um, maybe we could just talk a little bit about what were our misconceptions about what sex would be like, um, you know, based on the education that, that we had. Um, so from a, a Catholic, uh, upbringing, what were your, what misconceptions did that give you about sex?
1: Um, I, interestingly, I went to like a Catholic primary school and secondary school but my family aren't outrageously Catholic um, so my dad is English and he is uh, was Protestant converted to Catholicism to marry my mom you know all that kind of jazz mm. so I didn't really have like sex wasn't in my family sex wasn't akin to sin or I didn't really have mes- misconceptions in that regard but what I did mm. have was a perpetual fear of pregnancy and right. I know I, and, I, and I know that a lot of te- a lot of teenagers have pregnancy anxiety but for me living in Catholic Ireland where abortion was only legalized you know a couple of years ago
0: yeah
1: our conversations as teenagers were fundamentally overshadowed by this constant anxiety about getting pregnant because mm. getting pregnant historically in Ireland was the ultimate shame that you could bring on your family if you weren't married and you're talking about a country where women were locked away for the rest of their lives for having sex before marriage right up until the late 80s early 90s so sex before marriage was was seen as having this the this consequence the ultimate consequence of pregnancy outside mm. of being married and if that happened to you, you had no choice but to have that baby because actually to go and have an abortion was a couple of grand, it was a couple of thousand euros to do that because you'd have to get the boat, you'd have to get accommodation, you don't have the luxury of the NHS, you have to pay in mm. order to be able to access the services. And most families couldn't afford that. So if you were having sex as a teenager and you did get pregnant, that, that, was, that was your option. And for me, that mm. was... My misconception about sex was that sex led to pregnancy. Therefore, sex is something to be frightened of or the consequences of sex are is something to be feared rather mm. than recognising that sex is complex. Relationships are complex. Sex isn't just about pregnancy and it isn't just about fear. And so I think that for me, living in Catholic Ireland was the biggest, the biggest misconception or fear around sex that I had. And I don't know if it was different for you being Church of England
0: yeah it, it was I never um had that like level of fear about about pregnancy um because we we were in the, the sex education lesson in secondary school abortion was kind of mentioned as an option for women but the idea of you know getting pregnant and then having to tell my parents who were very straight-laced I mean I was more worried about being like completely disowned but not like to the extent where they would actually throw me out on the street or anything but just just in so much trouble that I could not comprehend like my life would be over uh, and they'd just be so disappointed um, but the the thing that I really I, I, I still had that fear from having religious upbringing but it came from this idea that if I had sex I would lose whatever value that I had as a woman because I I never thought sex before marriage would be the end of the world. But when you get read passages of the Bible where women are stoned to death for having, you know, sex before marriage or adulterous sex or whatever, it does make it seem a lot less appealing. Um, Not because I thought I'd be killed for it, of course, but just because, you know, your father wouldn't want you, a husband wouldn't want you, society would shun you. Mm. And... I mean, I grew up watching friends and stuff, so i I knew realistically that sex wasn't this awful bad thing where women were always seen in a negative light um but i uh, between the the those religious messages and the media that i that I watched or consumed, I just ended up feeling that i that I was scared of it like it was this huge responsibility that that I was really scared of, and then guilt any time I had. Any sexual feelings because I felt like it was a sin and it was, it was bad and it was wrong and I should wait for marriage. And that if I, if I ever get to that point where someone would want to marry me, but I'd had sex, then I would never end up with somebody because that's another thing. As a, as a young girl, you kind of get taught that, you know, securing a man, growing up, having the, you know, the Disney princess white wedding is what every girl should want. And thankfully, I've been able to kind of, unlearn a lot of that stuff and I don't uh I personally I don't practice any religion anymore um for me it wasn't something that was constructive to grow up with um hopefully I'm sure it helps other people in various situations but yeah sadly that wasn't my experience and I I just ended up feeling really like I guess repressed is the right word
1: <laughs> I think so, I'm I think I'm very lucky that I didn't have. That experience. So I I grew up in a house where my mom is very feminist, and she championed like education for particularly her girls, where she mm-hmm. was like education is key. See the world. Take every opportunity that you can have. And there was no, there was no narrative in my household about the dream wedding or mm-hmm. you know finding a man or and so. Even if I did hear it, so we we'd go to mass on a Sunday up until we made the decision not to. Like right. you know, we we went when we were children, and then when we got old enough to say, "Actually, I don't really want to go to mass anymore." My mom was like, "That's fine." Um, so even if I heard those Bible stories about like you know marriage being um, uh, what you call it, a sacrament and all those ridiculous things, right? <laughs> I it wasn't perpetuated in my home life, so. I, di- I didn't really feel impacted by, you know, feeling guilty about sex or, or or guilty about sexual desire or feeling like, OK, I need to wait until marriage because otherwise I'm not, you know, I'm not good enough to be married because I need to be virginal and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really have any, that that didn't have any impact on me, luckily. And I think I'm actually quite lucky that I have A big feminist, (laughs) (laughs) ma'am.
0: So we've sort of touched on this a little bit already, but um, maybe if we talk a a little bit more about the importance of of sex education and kind of what is really at stake here with with sex education lessons.
1: Well, what's really important about sex education is that, so like I said, not all children have a home life where Mm. they can have these conversations. And I've met a million parents in my time who have said oh no, my child is my best friend. We talk about everything. And I say, well, no, you don't. Because they're not, I'm sorry, they do not talk to you about everything. And there are things that happen in your child's life that you're never going to know about. And why sex education is so important is because children need, I keep saying children, but I mean like teenagers, but they they need a platform to be able to ask the questions that ordinarily they might not feel like they can ask to their parents or to the adults in their lives. And also they need a platform to be able to address misinformation and misunderstandings mm. because misunderstandings are so chronic. I mean, if you think about the things that, you know, you misunderstood yourself as a teenager, like uh, you can't get pregnant during your period, for example. Yeah. You know, like, and, and those things fundamentally aren't true. But if you have... A, a histrionic narrative about sex education that's all about the consequences of heteronormative sex. So, pregnancy, disease, the mm. mean girls mode of sex education, where you know if you have sex standing up, you will get pregnant and die. Yeah, that's not helping children in any way, shape, or form. So, actually, what sex education needs to do is recognise what's happening in their world right now. So, what are they? Mm. What are they actually facing? And what sort of things did I wish somebody had a conversation with me about? And the number one thing that I think should be on every single sex education curriculum is porn. Yeah. And some people find that so chaotic when I say that. The first time I decided to introduce porn into the curriculum was about six years ago. And I went and spoke to my head teacher at the time and I was like, I want to teach about porn. And she was like, oh shit, sit down. <laughs> and I explained to her my reasoning. And she was like, I'm fully on board with this. This is a great idea. Like, this is important. Because the reality is like, children first see porn in the UK on average when they're 11 years old. Wow. And that's, that's... not just, you know, soft core porn that you might catch a glimpse of on a Saturday night on TV. That is hardcore
0: porn. Mm-hmm. That's so much younger than I think a lot of people would guess. Eleven. Yes. That's, that's crazy young.
1: And when I discovered this, this fact, I, I was like, absolutely not. Eleven. So I spoke to my kids about it in school and I said, look, you know, this is this is the fact. Do you mm. agree with it? Because it's, it's really important to give them a space to be hypothetical as well, you know, so they're not like, well, I first watch porn, you know, that's, <laughs> that's not helpful to anybody. Right. And they agreed with it. And the reality is, is that they're not accessing porn via the Internet. So they're not typing in, you know, hardcore porn into Google. They're mm-hmm. accessing porn via things like Snapchat, Instagram and WhatsApp So a lot of times these children, when they're 11 years old, they actually see this porn accidentally because somebody sends it to them, like a friend or an older friend or some, you know, horrific adult on the internet, whoever it is. Mm. But if that's your first introduction to sex, it is something that needs to be addressed. And the average young person spends an hour and a half a week watching porn. Wow, That's the length of your standard film. Yeah. Like Jeez,
0: a, that's, that's, and that's a lot.
1: wild right that yeah. is just that's crazy so to leave porn out of the sex the sex education curriculum is negligent because actually what's happening is there's been an exponential rise for example in people presenting to A&E young people in particular presenting to A&E with vaginal or anal injuries because yeah. they're they've grown up since the time they were 11 seeing sex as pornographic sex, which is not what sex is like in real life. So mm-hmm. they have no idea about things like lube, for example, being really important. So you've got young people who are injuring themselves because they're literally trying to replicate what they see in porn films. And there's, there's, there was a study done recently and it said that 60% of young people are using porn as an educational tool because sex education is not robust enough to cope with questioning and it focuses on consequence. So it's all yeah. well and good to say to kids, you know, this is how you have sex, and the consequences are you get pregnant or you get a sexually transmitted disease. Mm. But what it's not doing is addressing issues like arousal in teenagers. How do mm. you cope with being really sexually attracted to somebody? Like what what do you do? What's normal? Is mm-hmm. masturbation normal? And it's all of those things that need, those conversations need to be normalized. Because interestingly, when we talked briefly about consent, in that same study, 71% of girls reported that porn gives a confusing message about consent and it normalizes aggressive behavior towards women. Now, again, I wondered about this because I thought, is this um, statistical reporting that is, that is designed fundamentally to prove a point or mm-hmm. is this genuine statistical reporting um and i spoke to my older girls girls that i've taught since year 7 and they're they're now in uh, they're now finished um sixth form and i spoke to those girls mm. about that that fact that study and i said you know do you agree with that and they were telling me that they you know they were saying you know hypothetically i've heard of boys who, for example, spit on girls during sex because they think that's normal. They think that's what sex should be. When actually, I mean, if that's what you're into, if both parties are into it, by all means, spit all you like. (laughs) But the reality is, is that porn doesn't show the conversations that happen beforehand where they decide what each actor is comfortable doing. And Mm. porn also doesn't, you know, address the... The, the massive issue of abuse in the porn industry and all that jazz, which is a whole nother conversation. Mm. But if you don't include porn in sex education, it is fundamentally negligent. Like it, it absolutely is because that is where young people are getting their sex education from at the moment. And it's creating a world where the boundaries of consent are being blurred because both girls and boys think that, porn, sex is what happens in real life.
0: Yeah, they they think that that's the reality uh, and it's not just kind of, you know, literal acting to actors who've negotiated a, a contract or hopefully negotiated a contract uh, and, and come in to, to do a job, um, which, you know, uh, is is what you hope porn is. Obviously, like you said, we could do a whole, whole nother topic on yeah. what the porn industry is like. Um, but yeah, it's it's the fact that they can so easily grow up thinking that that's what's real and that's what's normal and that's what's expected of them and uh this this even relates to the the whole fallacy about um and I I looked into this a little bit you probably know more than me about this as well but of women making noises during sex (laughs) and do we do we do that because we see the you know the porn and uh go oh I should be moaning and everything else or is there a good reason (laughs) and basically I read a study which said if there is a scientific reason for it uh you know because women can quite easily achieve orgasm without making any vocal sounds um but they said if there is a scientific evolutionary reason for it is to encourage the male to finish which like kind of blew my mind because i mean yeah that that whole it's it's just it's all just so much for kind of male pleasure and that that's kind of I think my main issue with, with porn, I mean, me and Nikki mentioned really recently about rule 34 in internet culture, which is the idea that if you can think of it, if you can imagine (laughs) it. There's a porn. There's a porn of it. (laughs) Right. And, um, but that so often that porn is for what would traditionally be the male uh, gaze, or the, the males' desire, um, you know, to, towards women, and you know, is that these portrayals often are aggressive and um, you know potentially violent towards women, rather than ever focusing on female desire, which you know is, is such an issue. Like it's such
1: it's- a massive issue, and it's just not. I mean, there's there's been an up a, a rising in in feminist porn, and I use the term feminist porn loosely. Mm. But actually a huge amount of feminist porn is also not centered around female pleasure. Like, Mm. you know, these kids are not understanding that girls have desires and actually female orgasm is not this elusive thing that, you know, only happens once in a blue moon that actually... I, sex should be about pleasure for the girl equally as it is about mm-hmm. the boy but as you said you know the the porn industry is all about getting getting oh, the, getting the money shot I can't even believe <laughs> yeah. I just said that out loud <laughs> but you know what I mean like it is yeah, it is absolutely. It, and, and it, it encourages that behavior in both girls and boys that girls kind of go well sex is something where I am um I'm passive, and it's all about the male pleasure and if I get any pleasure, brilliant, that's a bonus. When really, that's not the way it should be and like teenagers should be taught that, obviously, when they're kind of older and able to understand that information. But they should absolutely be taught that, that sex is not just about a man, you know, ejaculating. That's not the point of it. It's about Mm. two people coming together and it's about mutual pleasure. But there is... There is one positive that I discovered about, you know, the the rise in young people accessing porn. And that is apparently that the the free availability of porn to young people has meant that LGBTQ plus young people are reportedly recognising their sexual orientation at an earlier age. So Mm. that they're understanding what their sexual desires are far earlier than they would have, you know, maybe... 10, 15 years ago when porn wasn't as readily available, which I thought was really interesting.
0: Yeah, it's still a question mark for me over that content and is it still mm. safe and consensual and all the rest of it. And I, I guess that's kind of a a double-edged blade in some way because you kind of, you know, on the one hand you've, you've got, yeah, it's good that people are kind of having this information and being able to explore their sexuality and not feel shamed for that. But then on the other hand, you know, Clearly, like these explicit graphic images, are still doing a lot of damage if if kids are walking into any with, you know, bleeding and injuries and stuff. Yeah. So I, I can completely understand your are saying that porn should be on the curriculum because it's giving kids the answers and the information to navigate that.
1: Yeah, and and trying to make kids realize, and this is this is the hard part about it. it, is trying to make kids understand that. It's just not real life that you're looking at. You're looking at an industry where the people are beautiful, but they're aesthetically what we, you know, societally accepted version of beautiful. And Mm. they're they're filming this under harsh lights in a villa in L.A. You know what I mean? And it's it's and I always say to, to young people when I was teaching them about sex ed that. Think of porn stars as being like athletes, you know, they train, they prepare for a particular shoot. And, you know, it is the reason why young people are ending up in A&E because they, they don't understand that actually the background of porn is it's it's not instantaneous, that there's a lot of work that goes into achieving you know physically what they're able to achieve but the actual production of the thing to make it look you know seamless and beautiful and you know all these people are like Mm. ripped and completely hairless and all of those ridiculous things that the porn industry has perpetuated throughout the years. Yeah. And it's just trying to encourage young people to understand that like when you come to have sex it's not
0: going to be like that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it's also not going to be like that scene in Titanic with the handprint which was no. exactly what I thought <laughs> after watching Titanic I was like oh it'll be like that and I j- I'll just need a window t- to steam up and put a handprint on
1: yes and a, <laughs> and a boat and a carriage and a near death experience that's all anybody needs for their yeah, first time
0: <laughs> that's that's now my fetish no it's not I'm joking but <laughs> um, but yeah so it's it's the education about this that's yeah that's, that's massively important um, and we we're going to also touch On what needs to change about sex education? So, I mean, certainly in terms of the content of the curriculum, um, there's you know a a huge amount about pornography uh, that that kids need to be told about and educated about. But I think there's some some other stuff there about inclusivity as well um for lgbtqi plus uh you know kids uh because you know just remembering back to the the lesson that i had where you know boys were put in one room and girls were put in another room and told right you're gonna have periods and i assume the boys were told they're gonna have you know erections or wet, wet dreams or whatever but that is still very much um you know teaching kids within a strict gender binary of cisgender male and cisgender female and you know i, I trans women are women trans men are men you know we can't define gender by you know what what sex you have your gender identity is who you are not what what you know what bits you're born with uh so not all people who menstruate will identify as as women um, there will be trans men out there who will still menstruate and I, I can only imagine, obviously being a cisgender woman myself, but I can only imagine that, you know, for a kid growing up, that will be really hard to navigate and, you know, I, I know that there's a, a huge wealth of information and support online now for people to find, but like, you know, for, for people my age, there was nothing, like if any of the kids in my class were non-binary or trans, there was no space for them.
1: No, absolutely not. Like, even in terms of gay people, you know, 10, 15 years ago when I was in uh, secondary school, there was one girl who we all assumed was a lesbian, just assumed, and she had such a hard time in school because of that. Because Mm. we weren't educated about sexuality. And as a result, being in that space, being in a school space was really difficult for that person. Mm. And one of the things that I wanted to include in, in... in my sex education curriculum was lessons about sexuality, but not just about, you know, this is what it means to be gay. That's it. Let's move on. Mm. Because our young people, they are understanding of a whole world of different sexualities that I didn't even know existed until relatively recently You know, I had to have young people explain to me the difference between pansexual and bisexual (laughs) because Mm. I was like, what? Sorry, I don't understand (laughs) this world. Um, And they explained it to me. So, you you know, it has to be if you're going to be inclusive, it has to be all inclusive. And you have to teach children about trans people and trans rights and what that means and how fundamentally it isn't a threat to you if somebody else is trans. And it's nobody's business if somebody else is trans. It's nobody's business if somebody else is pansexual or bisexual or Mm. demisexual, whatever it is. And however they choose to express that is their choice and it is not your business. And that's one of the hardest things to get across to young people because the minute somebody is different, even still in this day and age, the minute Mm. somebody is different for whatever reason they are immediately a target which is sad but it is a reality and the only way to combat that is through education that is thorough and holistic and not just you know somebody is gay or straight that there's a whole myriad of stuff going on there that needs to be addressed.
0: Mm, No absolutely Uh, because you know the, the what's at stake if, if you know that the education there is is non-inclusive is that it just reinforces and upholds this construct that you know what's normal is to be cisgender and straight and anybody outside of those gender binaries is taboo or anti-normal and that makes discrimination so much easier and you know violence against the lgbtq plus community you know uh not necessarily m- like that it happens more, but that it's not questioned as much. Um, so, so yeah, absolutely. You know, in terms of, uh, you know, the, the history and current state of, you know, uh, gay liberation movement and trans rights, uh, movements now. Um, I, I would love for that to be included on the sex education curriculum because, you know, what, what's good is, is that, you know, the more information that's accessible, the more people feel comfortable, you know, coming out and saying, yes, this is how I identify. Uh, What we're starting to see is that, you know, the people think that the numbers are rising because, oh, people are being shown all this content and it's making them gay or it's making them trans. (laughs) It's not. It's that this is becoming normal so people don't feel scared or ashamed anymore. And that's why there's there's more, uh, you know, cases or whatever, or occasions of people saying, yeah, I identify as this, or, or yeah, I I feel attracted to, you know, this type of person. Um, and that, that just needs to be fine. Like there needs to be no shaming or, or, or bias as, as much as we're humans. And, you know, we sometimes do sort of have unconscious biases, but we need to be questioning that, um, and just addressing those, that, that imbalance of attitudes, um, towards, you know, different genders and, and different Sexualities. It just it needs to be completely inclusive. That's my my biggest hope for the future of of sex education.
1: You'd be really surprised. So the school that I worked at for the last six years and the school I worked at previously were really positive about LGBTQ plus rights and inclusivity Mm. and visibility and they were totally open to any work being done around that so I went and I did stonewall training which is the um training for educators about LGBTQ plus rights and activism and all of that jazz and it was Mm. really good training and it was all about like the language that you use and why that's important and giving you know young people safe spaces but the amount of educators that were at that training that were saying that their schools won't allow them to make this a big deal. And if they try and make it a big deal, they're seeing it's kind of met with eye rolls and, oh, like, really, is this important? Well, actually, yes, it is really important. It's incredibly mm. important. And there's elements of it that I always thought were almost tokenistic, like they would say it's Stonewall Training, you should get your staff um, rainbow lanyards, or right. you should um have flags in your room now I've always had I've always had both an Irish flag <laughs> and a pride flag in my classroom always and i I kind of was I was thinking about the whole lanyards thing and I was like, you know what i'm just gonna I'm just gonna do it and we'll see it mm-hmm. you know I feel like it's a little bit tokenistic, but if people want to wear one, maybe it'll make a difference to some young people and I listened to a podcast where a um gay man, an Irish gay man was on and he was talking about how he would have loved if he had seen even one teacher with a pride flag in their classroom. So that made Mm -hmm. me think, oh, maybe this isn't actually really tokenistic. And interestingly, lots of staff members, they were desperate to wear a rainbow lanyard. They were loving it. Interestingly, I had more children come out to me
0: Wow. When
1: they realize when they saw the pride flag that like I, I, I think I might have had more children come out to me than anybody else in the universe. Um <laughs> But I also got an email uh, only just recently from a student who said, you know, I never felt like I never felt the need to come out to you or anybody else, but I just wanted to let you know that I always felt safe in your classroom. Um wow. and I was like, Okay, so Maybe I see it as tokenistic, but then again, I'm a cis cisgender woman in a in a heterosexual relationship. Mm. It's not my place to decide what's tokenistic and what isn't. But actually, even small changes like that in terms of LGBT young people are really important in schools.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. And they and they're
1: often those little changes are often seen as being kind of, oh, it's just a bit of a faff really, it's just a bit of a tick box exercise well for a young person they might not see it that way
0: yeah yeah absolutely the the best thing that we can do surely is is to just you know make make it clear that you know you're there and you're here to support them and would never judge or anything like that and then follow through with it as well which you know um is the other thing because a, a lot of people talk about performative allyship yeah which would be if a teacher kind of wore the lanyard as a tick box exercise tick box exercise and uh, and then if a kid actually tried to talk to them would I imagine be really dismissive or um not supportive or empathetic uh so it's it's just it's showing up you know for for the LGBT community so um yeah actually being an ally and coming through <laughs> performing that role not just pretending to I guess
1: <laughs> and there is a there is an importance as well in which is difficult again as a as a straight woman to kind of figure out how to include this into a curriculum. But when we talk about sex education and we talk about like pleasure and the mechanics of sex and, mm. you know, all of those things, we don't include queer people. Like they, yeah. that, that just doesn't exist. So a lot of times um, young gay men, for example, because for some, they come out earlier, obviously for others, they might not come out for years and same for um, young gay women. Hmm. you might for a long period of time be essentially the the only gay in the school <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which which means yeah. that when other young people are having their first they're having their first kiss they're having their first sexual encounter and you're missing out on that entire world
0: hmm.
1: and not only are you missing out on that entire world but you're also while everybody else is having sex education that is relevant to them none of it really is relevant to you right and how do you bridge that gap between what's appropriate to talk about in a classroom in terms of you know you don't when i say the mechanics of sex i don't mean we go into you know great detail
0: about, right about positions about, about the everything. ins and
1: outs of it Pardon, right. pardon my pun. <laughs> and you know odd questions come up every now and then and i have no problem answering questions that might be a little bit out there as long as they're you know appropriate But it's how do you how do you include proper LGBT sex education that, Mm. again, isn't just about disease because that's what ends up happening. And you perpetuate stereotypes when you do that, when you talk Mm -hmm. about LGBT sex and link it to disease, you know, so it's, it's yeah, that's an interesting facet of sex education that also needs to be explored. I mean, I don't know how to do that.
0: Well, I I guess, you know, I think it relates back to what you said earlier about teaching that sex is about mutual pleasure for people because the first uh, introduction that I had to sex education back at around age 10 was that sex is because of reproduction sex is about pregnancy and the penis goes in the vagina and that's the equipment that's involved in this process and that's how it works and that's the norm and you know it's it's taking the focus away from that and giving empowerment to people to to not feel uh abnormal or shamed for for having sexual feelings um whether they're you know to uh, a member of their own sex or the opposite sex like or a non-binary person um you know and just just Changing the focus that, you know, as long as it's safe, um, and you're educated on it, it is, you know, a, a good thing and a physical expression of, how, you know, how you feel about someone uh, rather than purely for reproduction. Cause that's just a bit too handmaid's tale, you know? Like, yeah, it is. So you're it's so handmaid's that that tale. Women are, women are, you know, um, baby machines and, you know, they just have the kids and keep going until they have menopause and then they die. <laughs> like that just needs to not be the social narrative anymore I think
1: and one of the one of the things that I used to do with year nine I think which is age kind of 13 14 Mm -hmm. is to address slut shaming because that fits into that narrative so we still in some way uh, uh, kind of adopt the Madonna whore complex I think you know in somewhere in our psyche. There's Mm -hmm. this, for a lot of people, there's an idea that um, a woman is either virginal or she's a raging slut. And Mm -hmm. slut shaming is something that's really important to talk to kids about because there's a real dichotomy between um, what is seen as like acceptable and desirable in the media. So you've got, you know, women who, women like Kim Kardashian, for example, who Mm -hmm. um, use their sexuality as a way of advertising products, as a way of advertising clothes. I mean, mm. you do you get that money, girl? You know, sure. But then in real life, for for young girls, if they are similarly sexualized, or um, like by their own choice, or they engage in sexual behavior, they're seen as a slut. So it's a really important thing to think about with young people: is how do you, how do you teach them that sexual liberation is a important, but b different for everyone, mm. and. If, as long as somebody is happy and they are consenting to sexual activity and it's legal and all of that jazz, then actually it's not anybody else's place to decide whether or not what they're doing is right or wrong. And that for some people, sexual liberation might be um, I want to wait until I'm married and that's my mm. choice and I'm happy with that choice. That's absolutely fine. Or for some people, sexual liberation might be I want to go out every weekend and have sex with you know two three different people whatever they want to do and it's it's allowing just young people to recognize that there is a whole spectrum of sex sexuality sexual liberation and that that's okay and that's normal
0: yeah absolutely I I 100% agree with you it's definitely coming more into the into the forefront or into the mainstream in terms of you know recognizing that we do need to be teaching kids this stuff and and like you said earlier to to not do so would would be negligent um because you know I, I mean we've seen this happen before where you know banning abortion just leads to back alley abortions people are still going to do it telling people they can't have sex well they're still going to do it they're just going to learn it from porn and end up getting yeah. themselves injured or whatever you know if we if we can you know educate and empower people with you know how to navigate this stuff then not only they're going to go ahead and do it but they're probably going to be way safer way happier way more empowered um so yeah that can only be a good thing
1: definitely 100 percent.
0: awesome so um so shall we move on to um to science section which uh which you are um taking uh nikki's place this week um, i am to do her science section we could always alliterate it for like emma's education if you want to give it your own brand but
1: (laughs) I mean I (laughs) I am am definitely not a scientist just gonna put that one out there but (laughs) one of the great questions and I'm gonna keep this relatively short because I've just been rambling but one of the great questions that I have asked many teenagers many times in my career is why did you do that (laughs) and they inevitably go I don't really know I just did (laughs) <laughs> so what we what we kind of need to accept and understand is that teenagers will always do stupid things and they will never cease to amaze you with the stupid things that they do. But there's a scientific reason behind that. So there's like, there's several schools of thought as to why teenagers are more inclined towards risk-taking behaviours. And we often say, oh, it's just, it's just hormones, it's puberty.
0: Mm. And
1: yes, in boys, you know, they have, when they hit puberty, they have an increased um, level of testosterone, which causes kind of more aggressive, more what is seen as stereotypically masculine behavior. But there are other biological and evolutionary factors at play. So Mm -hmm. the first thing for risk-taking behavior, and risk-taking behavior is classified as anything that is potentially dangerous. So that can be drink drugs driving stupidly jumping off right. buildings doing all that jackass stuff that was really popular in like the 90s and early 2000s
0: right shoving your mate down a roof in a yeah. shopping cart yeah All those kind of things <laughs> all that but good also
1: stuff. like sexually risky behavior so having unprotected sex all of that jazz right. so the first thing is that it's about mate seeking behavior So in terms of evolution, obviously the human race survives by our ability to reproduce. Mm. And therefore, lots of male risk-taking behaviours are completely governed by their subconscious and this subconscious biological need to find a mate. Because Mm. risk-taking behaviour, in terms of evolution, is indicative of power, strength and virility. So, you know, there's that old saying that it's only the bold and the beautiful that survive. Mm. So as a result of that, young males are more inclined to engage in risk-taking behaviours in the presence of young females that they find attractive. However, they're less likely to engage in risk-taking behaviour when they're in a stable relationship. So there was Mm. this psychologist called Carol Silva and he did something called the stoplight game, which is used again later, but they basically got a load of teenagers who were in relationships and they shoved them into this car stimulator. Uh, not stimulator, what's the word? Simulator. So oh, yes, yeah. in, in <laughs> it, they had to drive through a town in this simulator. And mm. every time they got to a traffic lights, the traffic lights would turn to orange, indicating they need to slow down. But they were, I think they were being timed as to how quickly they would get to their destination. When they were right. with their girlfriend in this simulator, they were less likely to... to to show any risk-taking behaviour. When they were alone, they were less likely to show any risk-taking behaviour. However, when they very deceptively introduced a really aesthetically pleasing young woman into the equation that had recently broken up with her boyfriend but still wanted to do the test, (laughs) the boys displayed a massive increase in risk-taking behaviours in their driving. So it's really interesting that actually risk-taking behaviour in teenagers is an evolutionary thing. But it's Mm. also a biological phenomenon too. So because, you know, in the modern world, we use things like MRI and brain scanners and CAT scans, and we can study the human brain in a lot more detail than we could maybe 20 years ago. Mm. So lots of people think that young people engage in risk-taking behavior because their perception of risk is not as good as adults so they don't understand the risk that's involved but that has been shown time and time again to be completely untrue that young people completely recognise the risk they can recognise it and they can also evaluate it afterwards but they Mm -hmm. still engage in risk-taking behaviours but actually there's a study or there have been lots of studies that suggest that risk-taking behaviour is actually about the brain's physical response to relationships so in teenagers, the right ventrolateral prefrontal cortex is actually less developed than in adults. And that's the part of the brain that helps us to manage social isolation and rejection. So in essence, teenagers feel rejection far more acutely than adults so right. they will they will do things to make them be accepted by the group, to make the group think they're cooler. They will do things to avoid being rejected. They will do things to keep somebody with them. Wow. And they use the same stoplight game to the simulator to try and see, to try and prove this. And it was found that teenagers were far more likely to drive in a risky manner when they were with their friends. But adults showed absolutely no signs that their driving changed when they were in the presence of friends, mm. which is really interesting. So actually, teenagers are both evolutionary and biologically predisposed to being idiots.
0: Which is <laughs> well, that vindicates a lot of my choices back then.
1: <laughs> yeah, and what's really what is more interesting is that we don't recognise um, risk-taking behaviour in girls. So we don't see it as risk-taking behavior. We see it as being a fundamentally male thing, when actually girls are just as likely to engage in risk-taking behavior as boys
0: yeah oh god it just it makes me just think like god we're just animals like these are the same kind of mating displays as like a peacock you know showing off his tail to you know because it's this very much like look at me i'm not scared you know i'd be i'd be a good mate because you know i'm not i'm not scared of doing this high risk thing so you know check out my genes um like biological genes not like i had trendy jeans on um but but yeah, um, that's that's so interesting. So obviously that part of the brain, the right ventrolateral prefrontal cord, I'm g- not going to say it right. I mean, but- I
1: don't even know. <laughs> I don't even know where it is. So
0: um, yeah, I guess as, as we mature from adolescence into adulthood, that part of the brain or the chemicals in that part of the brain stabilized and we no longer feel this need to kind of show off or yeah. you know take these risks and it uh, just it
1: just proves the point that in sex education they already know that having mm. sex without a condom is stupid and they yeah. already know that if they have sex without a condom there's a risk of pregnancy so why are we continually flogging a dead horse trying to force them to change a behavior that they're biologically predisposed to do anyway. Realistically, it's about preventative strategies and Mm. making them as educated as possible. Where's your local sexual health clinic? What time does it open at? When can you get there? You know, so like it just baffles me that even though scientifically it has been proven and studied that uh, young people's brains are different, we still try and use the same reactive histrionic methods to teach them sex education. It just doesn't make any sense.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. It's this idea that like, I guess it's the nature nurture debate again, isn't it? And yeah. like, so, so both are obviously important. Both make up who we are. But clearly, like, this is a very prominent part of our nature and like as teenagers in particular um I mean god I have so many (laughs) regrets of being a teenager and doing stupid stuff but now I know there's a good reason why I did all that stuff. so (laughs) being told like you know uh about abstinence or you know just to not have sex or just to kind of you know toe the line and you know uh be heteronormative it's so often like it's just denying our nature because you know as teenagers we just are we are going to act in these stupid ways and take risks um and yeah i guess it's just about yeah like you said preventative (laughs) so you're not dealing with like collateral damage later (laughs) yeah exactly yeah. Oh, awesome. That was a fascinating science section. And you know what? I'm sure Nikki will be really happy because she loves the, uh, the evolutionary reasons why things happen. So um, I'm absolutely so, yeah, convinced
1: that Nikki's going to listen to this and go, well, that's a
0: load of shit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guarantee she won't. Um, so for Creative Corner this week, uh, I just thought it'd be good to talk a little bit about representation of sex and consent in the media. But because this is about sex education, I thought it'd be good to talk about, uh, sort of, uh, media foot that's targeted towards younger people. So, um, for young adult, um, or YA, uh, readers, um, and new adult or NA. So these are two different demographics of, um, like, fiction, I guess, uh, because I categorize what I write as new adult, N.A., and that's differentiated from young adult fiction, which is just for teenage readers, uh, by the inclusion of explicit content. So uh, new adult books are for a demographic of about 18 to 30 age and young adult for sort of anywhere up to Age 17 usually, or sometimes will cross over to adult readers, but are really targeted towards, you know, younger teenage readers primarily. And there's a lot of, um, of, of <laughs> basically, I'm a huge nerd. So I, I, uh, <laughs> engage with like, uh, different writing communities and reading communities online. And there is a huge kind of ongoing cultural conversation about what level of content should be included for teenage readers. Um, because some young adult writers do include quite sexually graphic content in their books, and then these books are targeted to people between age 12 and, and 18. Um, and. You know, this can have the exact same result as we were talking about earlier when kids learn about sex from porn, which is to have unrealistic or unhealthy views of sexual relationships. Um, and, and consent is another one as well. So, like Game of Thrones, which was a massive popular show, like there were multiple narratives in that show of women like Sansa who become strong because they they go through sexual assault. Yeah, not like you were strong already and then this awful criminal thing happened to you just oh no you had to become strong and it's it shouldn't be used as this uh, catalyst for character development which it and is and I remember sort
1: of I, I didn't read Game of Thrones but um i I watched quite a lot of it and I remember thinking okay is this is this some sort of rite of passage for women? in this in this series like this is it really makes
0: it seem that way doesn't it it makes it seem like oh another woman you know has to deal with this awful experience again um and that then becomes normalized uh for for viewers who who just becomes you know so desensitized to seeing this kind of violence or sexual violence uh against women um which is which is massively problematic for obvious reasons ultimately i think for myself um if you are writing for for teenage readers um that's probably i've kind of come to the conclusion that like just don't just don't show anything that's aggressive like writers need to be really responsible about who their audiences are and if they are including sexual content I mean, there's also a question mark over the ethics of that, because imagine for a second that a writer who's an an adult is writing sexual content about two teenagers who are underage, like, and now imagine that instead of words, they were doing art of this, visual pictures. We would have no qualms whatsoever about calling that what it is and being very concerned about that person's you know, what they find attractive. Uh so I, I think, you know, if 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 your characters are over the age of 18, um, then showing consensual, um, safe, responsible uh sexual scenes is is probably fine, you know, in the same way that, you know, you can have responsible conversations where the focus is put on choice and on inclusion. Um, but it's such a sensitive topic. And um so I, I think as as a a writer we or or like uh, for writers who are out there listening um you know just doing our research is so important here and really thinking about your audience and and what's appropriate I think the important thing is that if the if we do put those portrayals out there for teenage readers, um, it just needs to be handled really carefully with everything consensual or maybe even just implied. You know that because <laughs> this is the other thing. I don't know if you've ever read a sex scene that just goes on and on and on, but after a point, it just becomes ridiculous and funny and cringy and <laughs> all of Fifty Shades of Grey. Yes. Why that needed to be three books, I will never know.
1: (laughs) It's not something that I have previously considered. And I, you know, I used to love the young adult um, novels when I was a teenager. I loved Mm -hmm. them and I consumed them at an ungodly rate. I just (laughs) couldn't get enough of them. And there's some, you know, to this day that I still would go back and read and I just had never really considered the dilemma of adult writers writing about children and uh, teenagers having sex. Yeah. Um, and interestingly, I mean, the, the law, the, the, the age of um, consent in the UK is 16. Yeah. Um. But actually the law is not as straightforward as that. <laughs> which is a whole other, it's a whole other, I mean, it's a whole other bloody podcast. But, yeah. <laughs> te- but but technically, you legally can't consent to any form of sexual activity if you're under the age of 12. And um, right. when okay. you get to kind of 15, 14, 15, it becomes more of a gray, a legal, a legal kind of gray area, which is right. an interesting thing to think about but doesn't change the fact that we're talking about adults writing about mm. teenagers having sex
0: yeah I just yeah, yeah I just I've
1: never I've never considered it so I don't really know I, I understand I can see that it's a minefield and it must be a minefield as a writer to think about why am I including this and what am I trying to portray and what do I want young people to take away from what I'm writing
0: mm. Yeah, because it's, it's not necessarily wrong for, for people of that age to read about sex. I mean, quite clearly, you know, if, if the average age in the UK where, where people first watch porn is age 11, and then young people spend, like you said, what, an hour and a half each week watching porn? Yeah. Like, they're, they're no stranger to this content. So it's not necessarily the consumption of the content that we're saying is, is wrong. It's who's creating the content, why are they creating the content, and what is in that content as well, because, um, there are, there are uh, readership communities where the books that they've read are not always very clearly consensual. Sometimes those lines have been blurred, uh, or it's, you know, a younger woman with a much older guy. And so, you know, in the terms of the characters, I mean, and so, uh, that kind of becomes a little bit problematic because that could portray you know I mean a similar situation that you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast with you know the girl at school um who's dating a much older boyfriend and that that could be you know I don't know pressure or grooming or or something else going on um so I, I think it's just it has to the focus has to be on the writer's responsibility of what what we feel comfortable putting out there and what's responsible to put out there um and i think that you know for for younger readers um you know if if anything you know in terms of explicit sexual content is put out there the bottom line is that it just has to be really clearly consensual and safe and you know hopefully not this this porn-like fantasy where you know uh because you never read like an awkward sex scene you know but I'd kind of love that if you know it was a bit like oh whoops sorry oh oh that oh that was a weird noise or yeah because like, it's that's far more relatable
1: for young people yeah. than these like you know pages and pages of this smooth yeah, transitioning sex you know and, and gentle it's, whatevers yeah I think one of the um I was I was thinking this week about, you know, represent representations of sex in the media. And one of the best things that I have seen recently is um sex education.
0: Oh, on Netflix, yes. yes. I was gonna mention this as like a little recommendation. Oh my goodness. I love that show.
1: <laughs> as somebody who has worked, you know, with with young people, teenagers, and, and and trying to trying to inform them of the world of sex, there is so much of me that wants to like take an episode of sex education and be like today we're going to learn about whatever it is and put mm-hmm. that episode on completely I would definitely lose my job completely inappropriate <laughs> but it's such a refreshing take on the sex on, on how teenagers navigate sex and I yes. I honestly I watched it and I was like, this is incredible what, what this this is what sex education should be really?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And like, because they include those awkward moments. Um, like, uh, you know, the, the main character, Otis, is, uh, you know, quite, uh, nervous about anything sexually. And this, this really hilarious moment where Lily, the girl who's really into aliens, they, they decide they're going to try and lose their virginity together. <laughs> (laughs) And she's kind of doing this, like what she thinks is like seductive dancing. And he's just completely awkward and humiliated and embarrassed. And teenage me feels that. Like I I have like throwbacks to like, oh, these poor kids. Like I definitely relate to to what these characters are going through. And um, yeah, I I think the way that the show handles it, I mean, pretty much all the issues that we've talked about in terms of, you know, LGBTQ inclusion and, you know, uh, consent and and you know the formal education that kids get as well I mean it's just so spot on in so many ways
1: <laughs> I thought one of the best things that they did which I actually sobbed when I was watching it because I thought it was so poignant was when there, there's this, this moment where a girl is on the bus and a man masturbates onto her
0: yes a ma- an yeah. older man
1: that she doesn't know and it, it you know so many women and young women, teenage girls, experience kind of that level of, I mean, it's sexual assault, but it's so far removed from what the media portrays sexual assault as or what we yeah. think of sexual assault. And women, you know, and and teenage girls experience that on a, an almost, you know, on a daily basis all mm-hmm. over the world. And I thought it was so well done because she kind of, in, in, the, in the series, She just brushes it off and she's like, oh, that's, he's so gross. Yeah, But actually in reality, it has this long lasting, deep rooted impact on her and how the police handle it is so painfully rooted in reality as to how police handle these things Mm. that I thought, you know what, every, every young woman should see this. Yeah. Just even that particular sequence of, of, the 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 impact or the the immediacy of what happens after mm. the incident itself, and then how it impacts her in the long run, and even though it might seem because it's not it's not penetrative assault, it's not how we it's not violent, it's not mm. particularly aggressive, but how it still impacts in such a deep way. Yeah, and I thought you know what this is so powerful, but again, probably can't show. A clip of a man masturbating onto a woman in a classroom.
0: Not going to go down yeah. very well. No, very true. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's really good that it, it brings brings those conversations more into the mainstream. Which um, it made me remember about uh, Michaela Cole's new uh, series, "I May Destroy You." Oh, I haven't um, seen it yet. Oh. Come out on iPlayer, but this it, it deals with um, it's very much more adult content, and you know, absolute, uh, you know comes with with trigger warnings for consent and abuse as well but the the issue that's really highlighted in in that show but also in sex education in the scene that you just mentioned is of not not understanding in the moment what has happened and not i not knowing necessarily what behavior constitutes harassment and what behaviors constitute assault because catcalling is harassment it's street harassment that is a crime but we just think that it's normal because it happens to everybody and often for the first time when we're you know walking wherever in our school uniforms and so you know we stop questioning it and that kind of insidiously just becomes our accepted reality Uh, and what's amazing is that shows like Sex Education and I May Destroy You are helping people kind of Uh, culturally you know come into this conversation where we're questioning those things and actually learning perhaps for the first time for some people that no hang on that thing is actually a crime and I that shouldn't have happened and you know but so many women that I know have so many stories like this mostly thankfully you know non-violent you know criminal ones but but something like this where you know something's happened and you just don't know that it's it's even illegal. <laughs> but no, it's, uh... and
1: it's you know I. You'd like to think that in in the modern world, when young people have so much available to them, that that's less likely to happen. But unfortunately, mm. you know, not even in terms of um, sexual assault or sexual abuse, because that is an unfortunate inevitable reality of our world
0: Mm. and
1: it's incredibly insidious and and abusers are incredibly um often incredibly clever people yeah but what you said about what what is what is healthy and what is illegal you know Mm. I've had numerous occasions where I've had conversations with young people about you know an, an argument that they've had with their other half and because of this media obsession with displaying passionate relationships as being akin to violent relationships Mm. they often don't recognize that you know somebody smashing the house up because you said you want to go out with your friends but then apologizing for it isn't a healthy relationship and is abusive or somebody obsessively texting you and telling you you're not allowed to go and you're not allowed to um you're not allowed to sleep because you have to stay up and talk to them or whatever it is yeah again it's abusive and not actually it's not a sign of how much they love you would you believe <laughs> yeah <laughs> and that's and that's really difficult because a lot of our you know our, our um media pr- representation of passionate relationships are incredibly abusive you know and they're they're not actually acceptable in real life but young people don't see that often
0: yeah especially in fiction i mean twilight was a massive one for this where everybody because because that was like the book everybody loved like you know uh, in young adult literature when i was growing up and edward was like this perfect guy who you know would be so protective over you but literally he stalks her he controls her behavior, manipulates her through, uh, you know, this, this knowledge that he's so strong and has the potential for so much aggression and so much violence. Um, and even though she's, she's kind of this young, fragile human, she's just still so besotted with him. And then as a reader, you kind of end up vicariously feeling that way and that that's exactly i I think the problem that that we're kind of talking about here where yeah you you don't necessarily uh end up differentiating between what's realistic and what's abusive and what's you know this just complete Fantastical idea of a person that, that isn't healthy or realistic in, by any measure of, of any, anyone's standards. Um, so yeah, I, I, I've, I've read so many essays on Twilight and why it's a, why it's real bad for, for girls to read. But unfortunately, I guess there's, there's a lot of content out there like that. But, um, with shows like sex, sex education, you know, yeah. I wish everyone would just watch that, and then that—that's where we would get our, our information from. Because uh, it just, oh, it just, it gets everything gets well, so much of everything right. I think. Um. So, yeah. Watch Sex Education. Don't read Twilight. That would be my advice. <laughs> that's the takeaway from this episode. Yeah, <laughs> that's what we've learned, summed up into one simple recommendation. <laughs> uh, there's one more Netflix
1: recommendation that I have, and I can't for the life of me remember the. Oh, it's Big Mouth.
0: Oh, Big Mouth, yes, with the which, Puberty Monsters. With the
1: Puberty Monsters, which is, I mean, it's it's very crude humour, but dear God, d- is it demonstrative of what puberty is actually like for a lot of people.
0: <laughs> oh, I've not watched it yet. It's on my radar, but I've not watched it yet. I will definitely check it out.
1: It's very good. The female hormone monster is incredible. Like it's, <laughs> it's just, it's really like sex education. It deals with a lot of issues in a humorous way, but it's yeah. just far more crude than... Um, sex education or far more crude than sex education and interestingly they had this there's a really meta moment at the end of I think maybe the first series
0: mm.
1: where they talk about um, uh, where they reference the fact that they're adults talking about the sex lives of teenagers and one of the hormone monsters like looks down the camera and says but if you turn it into a cartoon then you know everything's okay <laughs> and I was like yeah. "Oh, oh." That's interesting. So obviously they must have had those same discussions about like, how how much can we do as adults writing about this? But it is an, it definitely an interesting
0: watch. Mm, absolutely. I'll definitely check it out. Thank you for the recommendation. That's awesome. Yeah, no worries. Cool. All righty. So I guess uh, we should just give a, a massive shout out and uh, thank you. Uh, and everybody should go listen to the Real Life Ghost Stories podcast if you haven't already. Um, and you got social media as well. Uh, yeah.
1: So, yeah, we're on. Uh, I should know this. I say this literally every day. We're on Instagram <laughs> at Real Life Ghost Stories Maybe I can't actually remember. If you look up Real Life Ghost Stories podcast, you'll find us. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) that's all you need to know go and listen to us i don't talk about sex on that podcast so thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about sex
0: (laughs) anytime (laughs) um and you can uh check us out as well at not for girls pod on twitter and instagram um and if you want to subscribe and give us an apple uh podcasts review or rating then we would absolutely love that uh so more people can come find our our content in the future and do the same for real life ghost stories podcast as well because it is so good I have never in another with listening to another podcast been so simultaneously frightened but also cracking up at the exact same time (laughs) but you somehow you make make that work you and Dan so um thank you yeah Yeah, everyone should go check it out (laughs) oh I've also sorry I've got one
1: more plug I think by the time this comes out uh go and listen to Dan's new podcast which is called let me introduce myself (laughs) <laughs> yes. Um, I'm so
0: excited for that. Me um, I'm really too. Yeah, that should be awesome. Cool. All right. Well, uh thank you so much for listening, everybody, and we will see you on the next episode. Bye.